This episode of AD History is brought to you by listeners like you, contributing through the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Learn more about how you can support the show by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast and the exclusive benefits that await you for your generous support. Join us in the effort to keep creating the AD History you deserve by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast. Thank you. Have you ever wondered how Rome managed to stay afloat between the murder of Aurelian and the rule of Diocletian? Well, do we have a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, we have an interesting episode for today that kind of cleans up some of the stuff that we unfortunately couldn't cover in the previous episode that I'm looking forward to, and a really provocative Patreon submitted question. How are you today? Yes, Paul, you are right. We've got something a little bit different this time around. And because we had to cover, we both tag teamed Aurelian last time, and we're going to do a tag team subject for the next decade from 281 to 290. But we're going to do that in the next episode because that's such a big subject. We just wanted to cover some extra ground in this episode because despite how long we babbled on about Aurelian for, he actually only reigned from 270 to 275. There's still five whole years of the decade we didn't cover. So this is like a 270s.5 episode. We're going to think of a better name. 270s and a half, 270s.2, 270s, point two, two seventies uh, DLC, maybe something <laughs> like that. It's free DLC, of course, but yes. it's just some added content for you guys. Just so we'll literally, as Paul said, a good mop up. Yeah, absolutely. Because as I've given the speech before and here, here's the truncated version of it, we can't cover everything we want to cover. But in this case, we felt the need to go back and take care of some interesting points. No, yeah, no, this is this is this is a, a Patrick homemade episode. Uh, you, you lucky people. This is all this is all me. <laughs> well, no, you you're going to add your wonderful insight as always, Paul, but. I've done some writing here. I, I did some digging into these guys. And that's going to be fun to hear about and chat about. So with all of that said and out of the way, let's give our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. One, evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. History and the past is like a different country. Mr. Foote, Sir Patrick, you have the floor. Thank you, Paul. So yeah, as we mentioned in our last episode, we focused extensively on Aurelian. But he actually only ruled from 275 AD, so... Despite the fact we like to usually try and cover subjects that cover that entire decade, literally the two of us put together, we only covered half of that decade. So we really do need to go focus because to find out how the crisis is going to come to an end, we do kind of need to know what happened in the latter half of the 270s. So and what's crazy is there are three emperors who ruled in that time period. And after Aurelian's death, Rome slumped back into their crisis and these three emperors kind of did their best until other people, won't spoil things, came around. And immediately following Aurelian was an emperor by the name of Tacitus. And that name might sound familiar to some of us. I'll just say simply, not that Tacitus. Yeah, it's a whole weird thing there with the name in this guy, because from what we can tell, he did seem to, at the very least, be trading on the currency of that name. Because Tacitus, the original Tacitus, who we've talked so much about, had, like I said, some currency to him. It had, oh, I would say, something along the lines of gravitas. Oh, Tacitus. 
one mm-hmm. of these learned senators from our golden age, even though apparently his histories were not all too interesting or read at the time. And so it created some weird confusion there. It's, um, it's quite a debacle. Yeah, it is. Like, he, he did like to ride on his name. Like, he, I'll talk about it, but this, this guy, despite the name, we don't think he had any relation to the historian Tacitus. But that didn't stop him from getting where he is. And we seem to know very little about this emperor before his rise to prominence. And I said, he's not related. However, one source tells us that this Tacitus claimed to be related to the historian Tacitus. And that was, of course, the Historia Augusta. So it's a book known for not being true, claiming he lied about something, which seems like a bit of a double negative at sorts. So don't know how to go with that one, I'm afraid, team. I don't think he probably is related. But the Historia Augusta says that, so we can't rely on that too heavily. But by the time of Aurelian's assassination, Tacitus was president of the Senate, and once Aurelian was killed by the army, we talked about this last time, the army was so mortified by what they had done, they had killed the uh, rebuilder of worlds, the rejoiner of the kingdom. They actually said, no, we're not, we're not going to pick the next uh, leader, we're going to go back to you guys. And this is really strange, because as far as I know, in our research throughout this, this is the mm. first time to my knowledge that the army had shown any sort of remorse or desire for reconciliation for its role in the previous chaos. And I found that exceptionally fascinating because I hadn't heard a hint of this beforehand. No, but I don't think any of the emperors beforehand, you should have felt remorse for killing them, Paul. They were pretty useless. Aurelian wasn't that useless. So you are like, damn, we should not have killed him. Well, yeah, that, that's undeniably true, but at the same time, so, so often with military insubordination and them looking for the best deal and then effectively having a very transactional view of what they get for supporting a particular individual coming into power, they weren't too apologetic for a long time, let's put it that way. As useless as some of these emperors were, and believe me, underline italicize useless, they did very much play a very critical role in the whole crisis of the third century. They definitely had their might and their influence come to bear and played a very, very significant role. For sure. And yeah, clearly Aurelian was just the straw that broke the camel's back for those guys. They really thought, oh gosh, we shouldn't have done that one, despite the fact it seems very much almost like how we had the Praetorian Guard always killing off emperors back into the more golden age of Rome, who kind of sort of set the record straight if things were getting out of hand. Maybe the army were in this position during the crisis. That, and I'm sure it probably helped none at all that they eventually figured out the, those who participated in the assassination were quite literally duped into doing so. Yeah, a lot of people were tricked into killing them, yeah, especially, especially we were early for that case. So. That leads us to this whole, the army are like, yeah, we're not going to elect one of our own as the next emperor. So the Senate were given this choice once again. I think they've done this in the past. Uh, But the Senate were actually quite wary of doing this at first. They thought it was a trap of some kind. But eventually they agreed and they chose to have Tacitus, who was their current president, as their emperor. And I find it interesting that the Senate was so reluctant in this case. At first, it, it shows just how long it had been since the Senate really held true firm power in almost in any respect outside of the occasional scraps that they were fed, which I think is fascinating. And the fact that they're so weary on top of that is also, I would say, somewhat reminiscent, well, I would say somewhat indicative, rather, of the fact that Rome at this point, quite understandably, is very much a wounded political body. Yeah, I think the last time the Senate chose an emperor or emperors, I ought to say. Not under stress, of course. Yeah, yeah, not under stress. No, it was two guys who were chosen at one point, maybe sometime after Maximinus Frax. It was during the barracks raid, and there were two guys who the Senate declared, and these are the emperors. And I think the army and the people resoundingly said no, and they were in rule for no more than a few months. We talked about them in a previous episode, but yeah. it is impressive to have 
the Senate at this point want to again be able to make these decisions. But Paul, you, you've got some research that you reckon there was a certain someone else and she was emperor for a brief period between these two. Yeah, so this is an interesting one because in saying this, there's no consensus on the validity of this claim, but it exists, hence it is worth mentioning, is that during the interregnum, which is a very fancy word for saying interim between when a leader comes out of power and an absence of that position before somebody else assumes that role, however it can be done. I think it's actually still a term that's used in British government today, though it hasn't really been an issue for a long time, as far as I can tell, is that unbelievably there are some that believe that Aurelian's wife, Ulpia Severina is believed to actually have ruled the empire during this like six to eight month period where there wasn't any emperor. And though there's no contemporaneous or later documentation to support this, one of the reasons why I said no consensus, because that's kind of a big deal that there's no documentation considering how much the Romans like to document things. Yeah. There are some scholars that have come to this conclusion due to evidence from coinage. Numination. We talked about this a little bit in a previous episode, namely depicting her as Augusta, which was a term by this point that was basically for the legitimate and recognized wife of a sitting emperor. And the fact that it depicted her face calling her Augusta and dated in a period after Aurelian's assassination. And that's the best we can basically do with it. But it's an interesting little quirk that leads, at least on the very face of it, one to scratch their head and say, hmm, this is an interesting possibility. Unfortunately, as far as I can tell, there's not a heck of a lot more by way of evidence at this point that I'm aware of. So if you guys are so interested, by all means, go dig something up and see what you can find, because we're interested in hearing about it. For sure. And we, we end up talking about coins an awful lot. Yes, we've got the whole propaganda in your pocket, uh, we say religiously, but also coins are so important from a historical perspective. The amount of like research we, we do for these videos, Paul, and so often the only images we have of these emperors are just from coins. And it's just remarkable to see. And like what I find crazy is a couple of these emperors, a guy coming up in a moment, he was only emperor for a month or so, spoiler alert, but even he had a coin, like they didn't mess around the moment there's an emperor in, quick, get the mint working on pictures of them. It's just, it was something they did not take lightly. It was a very important thing to make sure that whoever was ruling at the time got their face on a coin. And Something I'm interested here, Paul, you're saying that there's very little documentation of um, Aurelian's wife being emperor. I I would in fact say there is no documentation as far as I'm aware of. I wonder if that's perhaps Rome didn't want to have it documented. This was a time where women didn't have the same amount of power. There were some very interesting women in Roman history for sure, but there weren't really many other uh, female emperors. Perhaps they were like, she can rule, but we aren't going to talk about it. We're going to make sure the history books don't remember this one. That's just my own hypothesis, but it's just something interesting to think about, really. I would describe that as informed conjecture because Mm. we're reading into it. We can't know for sure. What I would say... Though it is a theory that plausibly coincides and correlates with the available facts, and it's not implausible to be no. sure. So, it, who who knows? But <laughs> it was definitely something worth mentioning because it was that out of the ordinary and uh, really, really quite interesting to be sure. And I guess it shows us also just how beloved Aurelian was that they were happy if it, if it is true that his wife, they were happy for her to take over, potentially, if like I said, if it is true. I'm sure not many other wives of emperors would have been as beloved to take their throne, but they, they must have seen her something as one and the same as Aurelian. He, she, he, they probably saw her as the second closest thing or the closest thing they had to the man himself. And it just shows you if it is true, as I said, if it is true, just how beloved he was. And if Livia was any example that we can draw off of, uh, albeit uh, quite a long time ago at this point, mm. that's far from implausible. For sure. And something else, good little segue on my side here, something else we aren't as sure about is how old Tastus was when he became emperor. Mm. But a lot of people believe that he was 75 years old when he took over, which is that's, that's, that's even pretty old for today's standards. I mean, I know our emperor, well, my empress, the queen, <laughs> is pretty darn old, but she didn't take the throne at that age. So the first thing he did as leader was deify Aurelian and have his murderers killed. So this just shows us 
like I said straight away how important Aurelian was already they're writing history about how important this guy was they're immediately deifying him you're making him a god then he had Aurelian's murderers killed two rights make a wrong two wrongs make a right I'm sure something could be said for that then but then uh, Tacitus turned his attention eastward and he felt the Sassanids were Rome's current biggest threat despite the fact there were continued invasions from the Germanic tribes up north. So Aurelian had plans to invade the Sassanids as we talked about in the last episode. He was on his way to tackle the Sassanids before he got assassinated himself and Tacitus wanted to fulfill that plan of Aurelian so that was the first thing he did. So this planned invasion included actually help from Germanic tribes Aurelian had made allies with. But because it was scrapped after Aurelian's death, the Germanic tribes supposedly felt cheated out of an invasion. They thought, okay, Aurelian promised us an invasion, but it's not happening now. So they invaded Rome instead. They wanted to invade somewhere. So this meant that despite wanting to try and deal with the Sassanids, Tacitus had to get turned back around and deal with these Germanic tribes. And, you know, this is interesting. This is something I was thinking about when I was reading up into all of this. And that is, and, and certainly if there are those out there looking, are looking to do a little bit more investigative work, I'd be a love, I'd love an informed opinion on this hmm. subject. But think about how difficult it was, in all likelihood, if you're Rome, that is, to conduct diplomacy with these Germanic tribes. Because when we say Germanic tribes, this is a blanket term that we're using hmm. to cover a wide swath of groups that all have different interests, different inclinations at any given time. You know, they're not working in cohesion, even though they certainly have worked in cohesion and certainly would in the future. But ultimately, you make a deal with one and then you have to make a deal with another and then another and another. Mm. And it seems like it's pretty difficult to do. You know, there's not, from what I can tell, a whole lot of multilateral diplomacy going on here. So I'd be really interested in learning more about the difficulties of that. But let's put it on the other side of the coin, Patrick. Imagine you're a Germanic tribe and you're trying to conduct diplomacy with Rome. How hard would that be for you, especially given the rather frequent change in emperors who may have very different views on Rome's interest and their relationship with you. So you come to terms with one emperor and then six months later, a new guy's in and basically they're like, yeah, our, that, that agreement, we're, we're not doing that anymore. You know, you didn't come to that <laughs> agreement with me. And then it starts the whole thing over again. That must have been an absolute nightmare to deal with. It's amazing by this stage, the Germanic tribes wanted anything to do with Rome. Like they, they must have been like, we're not going to sign a pact with you because you're probably not going to be emperor by the next weekend. So it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing the Germanic tribes were happy to do any deals. With them. And like you said, Paul, we use this blanket term. There were so many different tribes over there. There's like the Visigoths and the, the... You have the Alemanni, you have the yes, Franks. Yes, of course. Yes. Those are just to name a few of them that are out there. And there's probably a high chance that these other Germanic tribes probably didn't like each other either. Oh, like most they definitely were, yeah. not. The, the Romans undoubtedly, they were trying to play them off another whenever they saw the possibility. Because if these tribes were very busy fighting each other... They're far less busy in all likelihood and a whole hell of a lot less interested in fighting with you. Yeah, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Something like that, yes. <laughs> yes. So in dealing with these Germanic tribes, he appointed his half-brother as the Praetorian prefect to deal with them. And these tribes, they caused huge destruction to the empire, but Rome won eventually. And this actually earned Tacitus the title of Gothicus Maximus. Mm, a great title. Yeah, and this is actually a pretty good start for Tacitus, though there would unfortunately be little more to his reign, because in 276 AD, just a year after he took over, he was murdered. What a big surprise. Oh boy. <laughs> yep, and supposedly he was murdered because his relative was murdered. So this isn't the Praetorian prefect half-brother I mentioned. This is another relative of his was murdered. So he had put his relative of uh, Maximinius as governor of Syria. And when Maximinius was murdered, well, we don't know why he was. When he was murdered, the assassins were scared of Tacitus' reaction. So they thought, well, Tacitus can't be angry at us for murdering his cousin, his relative, if we murder Tacitus too. It's... 
it's a very roundabout way of thinking things. I'm sure there's some holes in the history there, but it's a very odd way to go. We, we killed someone, so we're scared about what their relative is going to be, so we're just going to kill them as well. Why not just not kill anyone in the first place? But Rome was in crisis mode at the moment, so I guess that's where the easiest thing to do. It's interesting because you have to call pretty much any assassination, successful or not, a coup. And so mm. going after various people in power, especially if they're related, that are really quite crucial to that particular emperor's infrastructure of power is undoubtedly really, really important. Because if you don't take them out, then you almost most certainly, not always, but in a lot of cases, you have a built-in enemy. So it really makes a lot of sense to try to get rid of all of them at once. Yeah, and this is what we keep on coming because we keep on finding out. I said there's holes in the history here. Like these guys were coming and going so quickly. The historians didn't have time to fully record and they probably just didn't know a lot of these coups and these assassinations were probably in such secrecy that we don't know why exactly they were murdered. It could just been some of their men being petty and being like, I don't like them anymore. They could have been grander schemes at play. But we just know these guys were assassinated. We don't know why exactly, but then someone else had to take over. So uh, this means that Tacitus' reign was from September 275 to June 276. So all in all, he was emperor for just under a year or so. And while he might not be the most well-known, he seems to have actually done some good in his short reign. He, I definitely think he helped secure, if he did one thing, it will secure Aurelian's legacy. He he deified Aurelian, he killed his uh, murderers. If anything, he just sort of like helped wrap up that. He even tried to carry on what Aurelian did, was, was going to do, the assassin invasion, but that fell through when the Germanic uh, tribes decided to attack. And this is always hypothesis, but who knows what he would have gone on to do if he had not been killed at this time. He could have been another great emperor like Aurelian. We can never know. It falls well within the grounds of counterfactual history. But whatever the reason that he chose to really secure Aurelian's legacy, very likely for his own benefits, that's not a bad thing when it comes to history itself. Certainly, like I said, he certainly had his own interest in doing so. But Aurelian, I'm not going to pretend like this guy is some kind of saint. But no. the reality is he most certainly, if anybody, deserved to have a legacy truly cemented in the Roman sphere of things. Aurelian is definitely in that category. Yeah, definitely. But someone who isn't in that category is our next emperor, Florinius. His name ends with A-N-U-S. So I'm going to try and say it without it sounding rude. Florinius. <laughs> Let's just go with that. That works. And Florinius is the aforementioned Praetorian prefect that his half-brother sent in to deal with the Germanic with Tacitus. So that guy, that Praetorian prefect, he's our next emperor. And Tacitus, as mentioned, sent him off to deal with the invading Germanic tribes, which he did. But upon hearing his half-brother uh, had died, he wasted very little time in declaring himself emperor. So we're back to this state. We get one emperor chosen by the Senate. And now we're back to leaders of the army declaring themselves emperor. And he marched to Rome to gain support from the Senate. And they actually agreed with him. He was liked at the time because he helped deal with the Germanic tribes. Plus, he was related to Tacitus. And while it might seem weird to remember this, the job of emperor was actually a hereditary position, despite how much we forget about this. So it actually makes some sense for Florinius to become the emperor next. Yeah, it's kind of easy to forget, given how so many of these folks have come into that position over the last century. Mm. And obviously, hereditary rule has its own issues. We've we've been on we've been on that soapbox before, but <laughs> it's it's a hereditary business on only under the best of circumstances. And yeah. It's not even that great of a business to be in then. And like we said, it all comes down. What, what I think once we're done with Rome, which is it's, it's kind of creeping up on us. If we were to say what is Rome's biggest downfall, the transition of power has to be up there. It's constantly been an issue for them through good times and bad times. Oh, yeah, that's definitely one of the, the major holes in the hull. Yeah, yeah. So upon officially becoming emperor, he marched back to deal with the tribes once again. So he went from the Germanic tribes to the Senate to claim himself emperor and back up to the tribes. So this guy was on the go an awful lot. However, while this was happening, someone else was rising up in Egypt. 
We'll talk about that person in a moment. Oh, yeah. This Eastern commander was declared emperor by his men in Egypt. So while Florianus was declaring himself emperor, this dude down in Egypt was declaring himself emperor as well. Well, his men were. So he actually had the backing of his men. And Florianus wanted this usurper dealt with. So he marched to Egypt with his men himself. However, illness and heat decimated his army before he ever got there. And on this journey, many of his men started to lose loyalty to him. Imagine being dragged from the from northern reaches of the empire down to Rome, back up to go take on the Germanic tribes again, and then being told we have to go back down to Egypt. You would get pretty tired. And his men were like, you know, this guy's just dragging us back and forth. Maybe this guy, this, this upside in Egypt is onto something. And of course, that upset would be, spoiler alert, our next uh, ruler, Probus. And yeah. Paul, you seem to have some contention about me calling him an upstart. If history is calling him an upstart, I feel like that is deeply unfair. Usurper? Yes. Conspirator? Possibly. But upstart? No. And the reason why I take issue with the, <laughs> with the connotation of upstart because upstart has a, such a negative connotation where when you say upstart, you think about somebody who basically wheeled and dealed and got to their position, not due to any true, hard, palpable, obviously recognizable, amazing achievements. It, they just did it by scheming and plotting and, you know, basically being a jerk. <laughs> Whereas in the case of Probus, Probus is a monumental figure, because we talked about him in our previous episode, in the Roman Empire at this time militarily, because he's the one that created the second front that Aurelian needed so badly, in his view, to reconquer the Roman East, primarily from the Palmyrenes and Queen Zenobia. And that second front, of course, was the amphibious assault and invasion of the northern Mediterranean coast of Egypt, which under any circumstances at any time, amphibious assaults were not easy. And he managed to pull it off, and it proved critical to the hammer hitting the anvil in that campaign. And from what I can tell, he always seemed to be relatively loyal. I could be misinformed about that, but he was hardly an upstart. This is a man who very, very much earned, well earned, I should say, their reputation through incredible achievement. He was successful in most every campaign in which he was ever involved, and I think he may have actually been, though you correct me if I'm wrong, involved fighting in every major front or theater throughout the empire in his career. So this guy was the real deal. So I that's why I have a little bit of trouble with the upstart thing. That that was just when I saw it, I was like kind of no. No, no, he's not an upstart. <laughs> He's worthy, and he's going to get a shot, but I think you understand where I'm coming from in this respect. So, as, as the person who wrote these notes, I will say I shouldn't have used the word upstart then. Clearly, it's, I didn't the, pick... The word, choice, yeah. the word choice I consider more fortuitous, because it gives us a little yeah. time to talk about Probus. Oh, but, no, definitely. But all told, Probus was, well, at least he should have been, in the very least, quite venerated, because <laughs> health. We accomplish anything that's even a fraction of what he did on a single campaign. You and I will die well-achieved individuals. Yeah, no, Probus was the real deal. I think I was just looking for, I didn't want to use the word usurper again. So I think I just landed yeah. on upstart. Yeah, it's kind of hard to get around that one. You kind of have to find a synonym somewhere. Yeah, and I thought upstart was a suitable cinnamon, but cinnamon? Suitable, suitable, gosh, you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't believe I talk about words for a living. A suitable <laughs> cinnamon cinnamon whatever <laughs> you wouldn't believe that but yeah I, I didn't think about the connotations the word upstart had and that was a great way and that also did bring us neatly into talking about right probus was so important so but we're not on probus just yet because florianus isn't dead quite yet either so he's basically there so on his march to egypt his men murder him before he even reached egypt and this usurper i won't call him an upstart was, of course, Probus, and he would go on to become the next emperor of Rome. Even his men declared him Rome, and by the end of it, Florinus's men declared him emperor of Rome as well. And Florinus's reign lasted from July 276 AD to, drumroll please, 
September of the same year. So that's just over a month. He started in July, ended in September. He got August. He got one full month as emperor. But many sources point him out and say he was emperor for just one month. But this was quite a chaotic month. That seems for sure. Yeah, not bad. Yeah, he travelled around quite a bit in one month. But of course, this leads us on to Probus. And Probus, as we know, became emperor by being declared emperor by his men and even by his opposition's men declared him emperor by the end. So this is a true return to uh, the Barak emperors. He was chosen by his army and they gladly accepted. And ultimately, when Probus came to power, this is, this is kind of an interesting thing that under Tacitus, just because of Probus and his, and his great reputation, Probus actually made him supreme chief of the East, which gave him these sweeping plenipotentiary powers out there to handle matters. And then, of course, under Fullerianus, and this is interesting and worth, worth building on here in terms of the discussion we just had, we mentioned about this, that long campaigning all over the empire. He actually took a fa fair size of Probus's military forces under his command in order to do just that. Very impressive stuff. So I get why this guy, and even though he was a return to the Barak Empress, he was a pretty good one. Like this guy actually sort of kept up things. I think he actually ruled. So he actually ruled from 276 all the way until 282. That's six years. That actually makes him longer a ruler than Aurelian. It, it, it did. And the way he came to power is also super interesting, mm. which is to say that Probus actually was extremely referential and deferential to the wishes of the Senate, that when the position came open, he actually sent an envoy with a formal message saying he wanted to take the throne, and, you know, he was welcomed heartily. I mean, how could you not if you were the Senate at that point? You have yourself a yeah. war hero, a guy that, for the most part, you have good reason to trust, and comparatively, when you put it up against all of these other emperors, in this particular century, manages to go on to rule for six years. And something I find interesting with this is within these five years, we see Rome pretty easily slip back into its old Barak Emperor's ways. Like with, with the death of Aurelian, the Senate got power again. They had like a fresh start. It could have been a clean slate. And two emperors later, we're back to the Barak Emperors, we're back to the army declaring who should be emperor, who should be ruler. That's just interesting that slow transition, like. I just find that fascinating as well, how they had the chance to get over this, but it kind of just easily slipped back into their old ways again. Wounded political body. In some ways, they didn't know a function beyond dysfunction. It's worth noting, even though we've covered, covered this crisis in a matter of months, this, would have been, this was almost a century. Like, there would have been people alive now. There would have been like mature people alive now who would only have ever known Rome in this state of crisis. They wouldn't have been alive to re realise anything else. I think it's always worth remembering that while we're talking about it. Obviously, we're talking about it in detail. You've got to appreciate this is a huge passage of time. Even 10 years, like, go, go three episodes about it. There are probably people alive now who weren't even alive at, when Maximinus Frax first became the first Barracks Emperor. Undoubtedly, you're dealing yeah. with an entirely new generation, almost yeah. two, really, almost two yeah. really full generations since that happened. So all they've really known is chaos, which is a dangerous <laughs> thing. It's easy to end up in a spiraling pattern of dysfunction when that's all you know. I would love to know, and this can be a question for the listeners, I would love to know if any of the Barrack Emperors or any of the emperors during the crisis were born during the crisis. That would be really interesting to know. Oh, I'm certain of it. I'm absolutely I'm sure certain that, yeah, of it. Yeah, I'm sure there would have been someone, like maybe towards the end. But as I said, Probus actually got six years on the throne, quote-unquote throne. And he seems to have kept himself pretty occupied over these six years too. And by this time, Rome was again teeming with Germanic invaders, and Probus spent most of his time defending the empire and solidifying the borders, and he was victorious over various Germanic tribes. In 277, he beat the Visigoths. In 278, he restored order to Gaul and the Rhineland, beat off Germanic tribes there. And in 279, he beat Isurians. Isurians, the scope of Isurians of Asia Minor and the Blemians of Egypt. These are all very impressive feats for sure. However, like all Barak Emperors, he could only go so far. And in 280, 
two Romans would attempt to usurp him, Bonusus and Proculus, and Probus actually had to go off to deal with them. And in his absence from Rome, his Praetorian prefect, Carus, made a bid for power. He thought, Probus is gone. I'm in Rome. He's off dealing with some usurpers. I'm going to try and usurp over here. There's this is some real Game of Thrones stuff going on right now. You, give, you, you, you leave someone alone for five minutes and they try and overtake your pool. I mean, that's just the issue of the political culture bearing its head once again. It's like a bad soap opera. Yeah, and like, like going back to the whole generational thing, to, to so many people with so many soldiers, like I think soldiers are pretty young guys. Like soldiers are probably in their 18, eight, like 20 to 30s, if that. These guys, they only would have ever known a life where emperors were chosen by, I should just repeat this phrase, but they would have only known a life where someone go, I want to be emperor, and they have the power to go, yeah, okay. And I just find that absolutely fascinating. And that's just, here is an action again, Bonusus, Proculus, and Carus are all of this generation where they thought, I can just claim I'm emperor, because they wouldn't have known a time when that wasn't happening. Absolutely. Pretty amazing stuff when you stop, sit back, and ponder. Mm. Yes. What is going on here? So what Probus did, he had three defectors. He had Bonusus, Proculus on one side of the empire, Carus back in Rome. So while Probus and some men went off to deal with Bonusus and Proculus, he sent some of his other men to go deal with Carus in Rome. However, when these men got to Rome, they actually defected to Carus's side. And Probus's remaining men heard of this defection and they thought, yeah, we'll defect as well, why not? So before too soon, all of Probus's men were declaring Carus as their emperor. And like we've seen so many times before, Probus was killed by his own men in 282 AD. What a shock. And that basically wraps up the latter half of the 270s. I said Aurelian really did an awful lot in the first half of the 270s, but then you had these three emperors who left their own unique legacies in the latter half. And it would be easy to write these these five years off as another chaotic five years during the crisis. But when we dive into them, we see what these emperors did is, is, is interesting. We see that they were not actually that useless. All three of them actually seemed quite competent at their jobs. And even poor old Florenius, who only ruled for a month, did some good work when he was Tacitus' prefect. So perhaps in a different time, they could have left a larger legacy as some of Rome's more impressive leaders. Though the crisis ate them alive before they even had the chance to leave any sort of bigger legacy. And undoubtedly, all of this would lead to some very interesting conclusions for what Mm -hmm. is act two of the restoration properly of the Roman Empire under Diocletian, which you and I are going to go full bore into in the next Mm -hmm. episode, because he comes to some very important conclusions that are not that far off base. We're not going to spoil it, no. but we are going to make you aware that Diocletian is there. He's making his calculations, and when the time comes for him eventually to ascertain and basically step up into power, a lot of his sweeping changes are going to be based on current events for him. And just to wrap things up here, the best positive thing, the most positive thing I can say about these three guys, I can say about Tacitus, Florinius, and Probus. I don't think you can quite say they kept the ship afloat, but they definitely didn't poke as many holes in the boat as they probably could have done because we've seen it throughout history we've seen when a great leader dies empires and kingdoms just fall into chaos because they haven't got that great figurehead and part of me thinks that probably could have happened here rome easily once aurelian was dead you know the gallic empire could have gone hey aurelian's dead let's go defect again or the palmyrian empire could have gone hey let's try and defect again but aurelian i guess left such a good legacy and like i said I wouldn't use keep the ship afloat because they did they, they keep it afloat. Not perfectly, but it could have gone a lot worse, I think. So credit to these guys. You didn't do an awful, awful job. <laughs> well done. In terms of those former splinter states that you've just mentioned, I don't mm. think it would have been the easiest thing in the world for them to do because Aurelian oh, no, yeah, did yeah. a very thorough job at smashing their military, which of course is as far as you can bring those ambitions. But yes, but it is amazing that we didn't see some more proactive stirring in the wings there, that yeah. Diocletian even got his opportunity. Definitely. And that, I, I just think that's very present. So to give these guys some credit, 
I just don't think I think they could have done a lot worse. Like things could have got a lot worse after Raylian's death. Yeah. It did definitely, it definitely <laughs> did go downhill for this little brief period, but not just not as downhill as I thought it was. Well done, guys. Yes, indeed. Us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domine. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at ADHistoryPC and the hashtag ADHistory. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube by searching ADHistory Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash ADHistoryPodcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. So, Paul, it's the return. Because this episode is a bit smaller than normal, because it was more of a sort of catching up, mopping up episode as we've declared it, we thought we'd dive into a, a bit more deal with a great Patreon question. And, Paul, you have that question for us. I do, and this is a fantastic question. And if you would like a question answered on air in show in our famous middle segment, you can do so by donating to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash 80historypodcast at the $5 tier or higher. And when you submit them either in its thread or in a message to us directly, you will then have the opportunity for us to answer that question on air. And we love it because we actually get really good questions from our patrons. Mm. We really like these things. We haven't been able to do them the last couple episodes, but that's okay. And this one in particular, Patrick, I think everybody on some level somewhere, regardless of their age, can weigh in on. Because it's less about mm. the historical facts or weighing something out in this respect, but it's more about personal experience. And the question that was submitted to us on Patreon reads, what are some of the major generational, historically significant events that happened in each of your lives? And at what age, if any age that you actually ended up managing to do so, began to recognize these events as they were happening or very shortly thereafter? And that's a very interesting question. Yeah, so... In regards to historic events, it, it kind of helps because we're currently living in the middle of a historic event. And I think people realise, well, I myself realise this is quite a big deal quite soon. I think not everyone realised, obviously, clearly not everyone realised it was a big deal, but it took a while for some people to understand the historical impact of, of, of the COVID-19 pandemic. But Paul, do you remember like first hearing about COVID? I do. And and it's interesting because as far as this question is concerned, I remember at the time, the moment it clicked for me is when major sporting leagues began delaying mm. their seasons. And I remember texting my brother of earlier AD history guest hosting <laughs> fame about this very topic and saying, this is undoubtedly one of those generational historical moments that later on, I think many of us will share in. And this is definitely one of them. Yeah, this is definitely one of them. And I think for myself, I remember when it was sort of first kicking off and I was quite concerned about it. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm being too concerned. Maybe I'm being being too concerned about this. But then I sort of calmed down about it. And then it really did kick off. I was like, oh, no, I was right to be concerned about this. And just I remember me and my girlfriend were watching. Well, were we watching Game of Thrones? Well, she was rewatching. I was watching it for the first time. And we had to pause midway through an episode because like this unexpected announcement, uh, Prime Minister Johnson, there's like, all of a sudden like there was this announcement on BBC One between shows like, hello, we're now cutting to this emergency announcement. And it was him saying about the first lockdown. And that was just crazy. Just we sit there watching this. It was almost like a war announcement. You know about uh, the famous announcements of war. Was it Neville Chamberlain's famous radio announcement for World War Two? Yeah, it was in September of 1939, where he mentions that we have made our demands effectively on Germany to withdraw from Poland, which mm. we've received no response of, and consequently, this nation is once again at war. Yeah, that's the yes. famous one. It had a, that similar vibe to it. I'm sure you could watch that announcement. I'm sure it's somewhere on the internet. I don't think I do want to watch it again, because it was just quite traumatic, really. 
But it's from there, you know, know, like this is going to be a big deal. And it, it still is a big deal to this day, despite how much restrictions may have eased up in various parts of the world. It's still a big deal. But we don't want to talk about just now. I want to talk about more historic things. And here's a fun story. I remember going to bed one night with the UK firmly in the EU. The voting was happening overnight. Uh, when I went to bed, Remain was in the lead and I woke up and that was a different story. I was going to ask about the referendum. <laughs> yeah. The, the, when, when you talk about things like COVID, of course, it seems silly to be so wound up about like a political ties. Obviously, it's a huge deal. But looking back, I think, gosh, why were we so angry about that? Like before COVID, that was a shocker. And it was a shocker to the whole nation. It was like waking up, realizing this. David Cameron had announced he was dropping, stepping down as prime minister. It was absolutely bonkers. It was just a huge, huge flood of news all at once. Mm. It was, it really was, because the year prior, there had been the Scottish referendum on independence, and everyone was like, oh no, Scotland won't leave the UK, and, and they didn't leave the UK. So everyone was in this mentality that there were these big possible changes, but they wouldn't actually happen. And the amount of people are like, oh no, it's just a little referendum, it won't matter, and then it did. And it's understandable. I, 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 I wouldn't say I support it, but I understand why it's happened. I understand what was in the air at the time to make that happen, to make the British public want that decision, even if some of them don't want it now. And I remember that being a very historic thing. I remember sort of sitting, gosh, this, this is it now. This is this history happening right now. I remember looking yeah. in on the both the referendum to remain in the EU and then, of course, the result from the Scotland independence referendum mm. two years prior and thinking to myself, oh, well, you know, they'll probably just kind of mirror each other. Obviously, I have no horse in this race. I'm not no. a British citizen, not a British subject. I don't belong as a citizen or resident or anything like that of the European Union or the United Kingdom. But think to myself, oh, you know, it might be close, but I think they'll ultimately stay where they are. And then next morning, whoa, well, there's something for you. It was always this sort of, I guess the idea was, was cooler heads will prevail. Because that's what happened with Scotland, cooler heads will prevail. But 2016, the cooler heads did not prevail because something else happened in 2016 and Paul. So uh, UK prime ministers, they're not as regular. And I actually haven't lived through as many. I haven't lived through that many prime ministers. So well, you must have lived through a good, not, not to say you're ancient, but you must have lived not through. Yet. No, not yet. How many presidents have you lived through, Paul? Reagan, George H.W., Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Obama, Trump, and now Joe Biden. So a Gosh. grand total of seven presidencies in my lifetime. You guys burned through them. How many of those do you remember and like had an impact on you? Well, the second half of that question is a little harder to ascertain. I remember the election of 92 with H.W. versus Bill Clinton. Hmm. Uh, especially, obviously, not recognizing the importance at the time of Ross Perot and all of that. Mm. I would say the one that I actually had a more realistic and mature understanding, relatively speaking, is when Bill Clinton ran for re-election against Bob Dole in 1996. But mm -hmm. by the time the year 2000 came rolling around, and it was Bush v. Gore, I remember that extremely well. And then, of course, eight years later, yours truly was in Chicago the night of the 2008 election and the election of one Barack Hussein Obama. And because I was in Chicago and that was the epicenter of it all when you're talking about mm -hmm. Barack Obama, that was one of those situations where I was truly on the scene yeah. of something historic happening. I didn't go down to Grant Park because that was going to be a mess. But believe me, you didn't need to be in Grant Park at the time to get the full experience of what was happening in Chicago. That was on a very, from a historic standpoint, to be sure, one of those very interesting things where I happened to be at the place at the time. Yeah, I can imagine seeing, yeah, as you mentioned, Obama, heavy ties of Chicago, it was all based there. That must have been an incredible experience and did a lot, you realize a lot of at fireworks the time, a lot of yeah, fireworks did, did you realize at the time like this is history happening as absolutely. This question relates back absolutely to that. no question mm. about it that was definitely one of those times where i knew even i remember obama's inauguration i remember 
the walk. What the, the, there's the famous name of the walk when they walked to the White House. But I remember just thinking, wow, this is this is incredible. Like, I'd grown up under Clinton. Obviously, I'm not an American citizen, no any relation to America. You know, these presidents have no control over me. I remember I, 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 the, the first prime, the first president I remember is George W. Bush. Yeah. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, yeah. And I remember seeing like going from George Bush to Obama being bloody hell, like America's changing. Like, but yes, I remember the, the image George Bush had at the time, George W. Bush, I would say, uh, and the, the, how that sort of resonated with the US as a whole versus then with Obama coming. I thought, wow, this really is a change. It really does seem like a change, a huge change. And if I remember that, and I would have been in what, I would have been 13, 14 at the time. And they're even that young, I could still appreciate what was happening in your country pool. Naturally, it was a very controversial presidency. I don't mm. think I'm making a huge statement by saying that. But I do remember that in that election, one thing that cannot be forgotten was that was the very first stage of what we know today as the Great Recession and how much yeah. that was affecting voters and voters' thinking. And where, in my case, being not that far away from graduating college, as were many of my friends, and how that would go on to affect our generation as a whole. But when we start talking about generations as a whole, Patrick, I think the real 500-pound gorilla in the room is, of course, the events of September 11, 2001, which were only a little over a month away at the time of recording from it being the 20th anniversary of those events. 20 years, my God. So I would have been seven at the time, Paul. See, my birthday's just a bit before September 11th. Um, I would have been seven at the time, and I remember it happening. I wasn't emotionally mature enough to understand the implications. To me, it was just, it was just some buildings burning down on a television screen. There, there wasn't any other... Tell you what, actually, I have a really weird memory of 9-11. Uh, this might seem a bit crass, I don't know, but I remember, because uh, at, at 2001 was also, of course, a phenomenal time for WWE, obviously. That was amazing. That's, it was, yeah, it was an amazing time. That was like one of their best years. And um, I remember the news reporting on it. I remember the news reporting on 9-11. And in my child brain, 9-11 equated to like all of America being under attack. It equates to a lot of Americans dying, which is really awful. Like I said, this is a bit crass, but this is just, this is kid brain. This is a seven-year-old kid of on course. the other side of the Atlantic. And I remember being concerned, thinking, gosh, are all the WWE wrestlers alive? That, that, that was my, I remember that being my main concern because I thought they're like, they, uh, WWE at the time must have been my main connection to America. I, I knew WWE was an American thing. I understood that and I understood 9-11 was an American thing. So my dumb kid brain put those two things together. My main concern was, are all my favorite wrestlers alive or have they been taken down by this by this attack as well? And that's my bizarre memory of that of um 9-11. So I was a bit older than you. Mm. I was 14 at the time, only a few weeks into my freshman year of high school. Mm. And I grew up in southwestern Connecticut which is a, for all intents and purposes, a very immediate suburb, bedroom community, basically cultural enclave that's kind of an extension of New York. They say there's Fairfield County that's in the New York sphere, and then there's the rest of the state. And in many respects, that's true as in, insofar as it goes. And I remember when I received the news, and talk about it being in a rather crass form, I was in the third period Navy ROTC, and they were teaching us drill for the first time. And the XO came out there for the first of three times he would come out, kind of jokingly talking about how some plane had hit the Twin Towers. Now, to me, to kind of get a little bit more context into how I understood this personally at the time, I was one of those weird kids that was really into international politics and all that <laughs> kind of stuff at the time. And so when I heard that, I'm shocked to hear, sorry, I'm shocked to hear you're into international politics. Who would have thought? Yeah, 14 years old. <laughs> this, is, this is not self-aggrandizement. This is just how it happened. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, no worries. And it literally made me like weak at the knees, like to, to the point in mm. which 
basically talking out of turn and saying, that's not very goddamn funny, because mm. it wasn't. No. Then he came out the second time, still kind of joking about it, and then the third time he came out dead serious. Dead serious. And we went in and we got the principal announcement in terms of what was going on and what we knew, and this was before the internet was extremely ubiquitous, so we could all kind of see what was happening at the time. And I remember I went into fourth period algebra, and he just had us work on our own assignments in complete silence, and he literally just had his head down on the desk the entire time. And then I got to my fifth period Japanese one class, only to find out that, hey, your dad and brother are here to take you home a little early today. Thank you for that, mom and dad. I appreciate that very much. And then getting home and seeing my first images of what was happening, which this is going to be a very dated reference, but if you're of a certain age, you're going to understand exactly what I'm talking about, is I booted up AOL. <laughs> and the first image that I had was the explosion that happened when the second plane hit the South Tower, and in bold, huge freaking letters next to it, it said, in no uncertain terms, and I quote, America under attack. Mm. And I remember getting a whole bunch of instant messages from people that, even though we were connected with each other, we didn't talk that often, that were of the exact same variety, which is, are you okay? And is everybody you know and care about okay? I feel mm. like I dealt with maybe a dozen of those, and I probably initiated another dozen myself. So that was interesting. And on top of that, because my community is so close to what's going on there. There are certain points along the shoreline, of which the town I grew up on is a part, where you can go far enough out, and just the way things are positioned, and you can actually see southern Manhattan. So all of these places to me, because growing up, I spent a lot of time in the city. For someone who didn't mm. live there, he was there quite often. I could thank my dad for that. I can imagine. And so a place like the World Trade Center was very real to me, especially considering I had visited down at the plaza a number of times because, as I recall, this was back when Krispy Kreme was first really kind of gaining traction here in the States in terms of popularity. And they had an amazing Krispy Kreme that was down in the World Trade Center plaza. So when I saw all of these things going on and I eventually saw the footage, this was real because they were very real places to me. And everybody that was involved in all of this, you know, depending on where you were in the United States, I would say most people have their own story about how they experienced this. And depending on how close you were, it changes the nature of the story entirely, to be sure. And I haven't yet to meet anybody who doesn't know exactly where they were and the vast majority of the details of that day. For me, it's been 20 years, but I can remember that day in very extensive detail, to be sure. I can imagine. And uh, yeah, be, at least, yeah. And yeah. to be looking at it, being that kind of nerd for international politics, things of that nature at that age, I had a pretty strong feel for what the next courses of action would be. I'm not going to go into detail there, but I had a pretty good idea, ultimately, as to what was going on and what was going to happen next. And without a doubt, that is the one true major generational shared historical moment that everybody who heard it knew exactly where they were. It's like the Kennedy assassination, like the attack on Pearl Harbor by the Japanese that ended up launching the United States into the Second World War. It was our moment as a generation to experience that. So when did I begin realizing that these were generational moments to kind of hit the other side of the question? I mean, it took a bit of time, especially when they're really big things and you're kind of waiting for the shock to wear off, mm. which is always a factor in these kind of things. Mm. I would say probably after the age of 18, though I was fully cognizant of what was going on at the time, at least in terms of 9-11, I would say after the age of 18 is when I really began to appreciate wide historical shared moments and point in time for a generation after I was 18 years old and I had been given a good deal of time to think about these things independently. 
you're such an interesting source as 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 someone from the UK. You're such an interesting source of information on nine eleven, Paul, because. Not only are you of an age where it, it it could resonate more in your mind, but you were so it was so close to home, quite literally, figuratively and literally. So I'm always it, it might sound a bit too morbid. I'm always fascinated to hear your experience with nine eleven because it's such it's such a first hand experience. You just you, you can't get even like in other parts of the states they weren't as close as yourself. And I'm always fascinated to hear you talk about that. I, I'm always happy to. To weigh in because your questions on the matter are very thoughtful. I will say mm. the thing that was interesting for me at the time was in the days and weeks afterwards actually talking to people that were in Manhattan at the time, though not by any means below Canal Street, mm. what their experiences are. Because a lot of people from where I grew up would commute into the city. It was It's a very no, rational it. arrangement, which still is happening short of a pandemic and working from home. Describing the smells catching the last commuter Metro North trains out of Grand Central back to Connecticut, trying to have some kind of communication with the outside world. Like I said, the smell, they had a very specific smell. And at least for years truly, anytime I'm in a position where I'm seeing footage from that day, hearing that very distinct alarm, that very ear-piercing near-constant alarm that firefighters had mm. on them to indicate that they were there and there was a firefighter in distress. And if you're familiar with that footage, you know exactly what it is that I'm talking about. One thing that's undeniable in the longer run, though, Patrick, is just the profound impact that particular set of events had on my country and my generation, where it's only now that, from a strategic point of view, if you're looking at the United States, that we've begun basically turning the chapter going from more or less 20 years focused on anti-terrorism from a national security perspective, mm. and now, of course, back to great power rivalry and competition, which I think you guys know which one I'm referring to. So <laughs> that day, more than any other in my life, changed the world I knew in profound fashion. And if you guys have a story that you want to share on this very end, of course, be respectful and Either give us an email or leave it in the comments if you are listening to us on YouTube. Yes, Paul, thank you very much for sharing that with us. And yes, you guys too do tell us know any sort of historical memories you guys have, especially from around the world. Like we're only from the UK and from Absolutely. the USA. Absolutely, that's really I'd interesting love, stuff. Yeah, like if if you were living through the fall of the Berlin Wall, we want to hear about that. We want to hear about your experience of something like that. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah, that would be incredible to hear. I know. I'm. I feel quite confident we have some, we have some German listeners out there. So anything like that would be incredible to hear. Yeah. In fact, if we get any particularly good responses, I definitely like to read some of them out because yeah. that's 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 history on the personal level that i think is so special you know it's obviously entirely subjective but that's one of the reasons it's so interesting and th this is kind of i've thrown this on paul on the spot but why didn't we do that in the next middle segment of our next episode paul why don't we read out some listener responses if you guys have any, I'm sure you do. Some listener responses to their own personal memories of big historical events. Why don't we make that the the aim for the next middle segment of our next episode? Absolutely. If you're listening slash watching on YouTube, leave it in the comment section. If you're just on the podcast directories, definitely send us an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Like I said, adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. And if they're good, thoughtful, interesting reads, you better believe that we will read them verbatim in that special segment. And of course, guys, we will be back to, after next after next time. We'll be back to our normal Patreon submitted question. And Patreon helps AD History in the best way possible. If you want to support AD History on Patreon, you can do. There'll be a link down below. Just join up from $3 a month and you'll be on your way. You can $5 a month gets you questions here. $3 gets you $3 a year bare minimum and that will get you access to videos 48 hours early. And of course, the Patreon exclusive episode, Best of BC. It's a great deal for you guys. And I hope some of you care to join us there because, like I said, it's the best way to help uh, AD History grow as a podcast. Absolutely. And on that $3 tier and higher, you also get the special Patreon Director's Cut. 
of, of the episode as well. And at that $3 a month, we understand times are hard right now. But of mm. course, at that $3 a month, you'll also get that Patreon exclusive version of the show. In addition to the knowledge that you're helping us create the AD history you deserve. And if you can't afford to donate right now, which we totally get, if mm. you have the ability, depending on the service that you are using to listen to the show, leave a five-star rating and review that definitely helps out the show. Or if you're on YouTube, leave a like, comment, subscribe, and hit the ding-dong so you know when our newest episode has dropped, which is usually every other Saturday. So with that, us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domine. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally, primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT. And of course, on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in History, as well as my reader submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II related questions, which if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as AD History Podcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, Thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history. Thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.